1: I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin.
2: I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C.
1: It's Friday, the 28th of May.
2: You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman.
1: Thank you for joining us. Well, we have a first ever World Review episode for you this week, focused on the New Statesman's home country, the UK. Uh, So a rare departure for us, but there's a lot of internationally significant material to talk about with regards to uh, British politics. But before we do so, Emily looking a bit further afield what do you think has been a moment of the past week that's been historically significant in world yeah
2: world? i i just think that we shouldn't overlook what's happening in india with twitter specifically obviously we've spoken a lot about democracy in india and the pandemic in india but this week twitter has accused the uh, police in india of intimidation and has said that has basically said that the uh, police are are cracking down on on Twitter in india and I, I just want to flag this for a couple of reasons. The first is that I think it's worth noting the different postures that social media companies take in the United States or maybe in the uk and farther afield from their home bases right like, I find it very very hard to believe that Twitter would play a similar role here in the United States and in fact booted donald Trump from the platform after he instigated violence. I would also just note that Twitter has been one source for Indians to communicate with one another during the pandemic as their government as we've heard in previous podcasts has maybe not (laughs) been so forthcoming about pandemic relief and and from where it will come. And so this is a major source of information that's being cracked down on by the government. If we kind of say, well, that happened in India, we're allowing for one Twitter, one social media experience in the quote-unquote West, and another in India or in other countries where Twitter is made to contort itself to meet government rules, or or doesn't, and is, is what? Is bullied? Is kicked out? is So that's, that's one that I will note from this past week. And what about you, Jeremy?
1: My moment of the week also has a social media dimension to it. I, I was very struck, as were many, by the news on last Sunday, the 23rd of May, that the Belarusian government had Forced down in an, an a Ryanair airliner traveling from Athens to Vilnius in Lithuania, while it was just about to exit its airspace, they cited an entirely implausible bomb threat and sent up a military jet to to accompany this flight. To Minsk Airport, where far from rapidly evacuating the plane as you would expect them to do in the event of a real bomb threat, they extracted a young blogger and opposition activist Roman Protasevich and his girlfriend, who had been in exile. They'd left Belarus in 2019, seeking political asylum in Poland, and um, Mr. Protasevich is now uh, is now under arrest he is said to fear that he might end up being given the death penalty. Alexander Lukashenko, Belarus's autocratic president since 1994, has come under challenge from protests in the last year or so, particularly last summer. And Protasevich had been involved in Nexta, which is a, a telegram app channel that has been used to organize some of those protests. And that had him put on a list for instigating riots. Uh, and even he's even accused of terrorism by the uh, Belarusian government. so very very alarming um, defiance of international norms. the EU has responded with talk of sanctions and there's been bans placed on flights from Belarus's national airline. It also looks like a lot of other airlines are now avoiding Belarusian airspace doubtless concerned that, that the, the government could pull the same stunt again. and I think it's it's significant because it goes to show the extremes to which autocratic governments are increasingly going to crack down on exiles that remain involved in their country's politics through particularly through social media and this is something i wrote write about in my column in the new statesman this week you know we've had other cases like Ruhol azam a uh, an iranian opposition figure in uh, exile in paris who was lured to Iraq with the promise of an interview bundled into a car driven across the border to Iran where he faced the death penalty. You could also talk about Jamal Khashoggi, the uh, Saudi uh, commentator and journalist who was uh, murdered in the Saudi uh, consulate in Istanbul. So just very concerning sign about our sort of age of age of impunity. And indeed, those who want to read more about this. I'd also recommend to take a look at our colleague Ido Fox's interview with the current editor of the Next uh, Telegram channel, Tadeusz Giszczan, who um, is essentially uh, Protasevich's uh, successor and talked to Ido about the great concerns that his him and his colleagues have about their safety and about the state of the opposition movement. So I think that's very significant and worth continuing to pay attention to.
2: I just want to flag one thing before we introduce our excellent guest, which is that there has been some chatter, I know here in the United States, I don't know about in the, in the United Kingdom, but, but basically attempts to smear this young man as a fascist, that he had links to the, to the far right, to far right movements. And I just want to say that even if that were true, that is not what we're talking about here. Right. He is not. Do not delude yourself into thinking that this man was taken to prison because, first of all, that Lukashenko is in any way the defender of like liberal democratic values. And second of all, that what is happening here is because of his political leanings. This is a matter of freedom of the press and it's a matter of retribution against someone who blogged uh, in an unflattering way about the Belarusian government and police. That is what we were talking about here. It kind of reminded me of the campaign against Navalny and his uh, Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition figure who was stripped of the title of prisoner of conscience after there was a campaign because they said that he had said hate speech in the past. If you want to say that he should never have been given the title in the first place, that's one thing, but that's not what we're talking about, right? Like Alexei Navalny is not in prison because he made uh, deeply racist comments about various people, right? that, that That's not, it's, it's because he's an anti-corruption blogger and opposition figure. Similarly, this did not happen because anybody has political views that Lukashenko disagrees with. Other than the view that Lukashenko, should not be a dictator who's allowed to act with impunity.
1: I, I completely agree, and I've seen nothing to the nothing suggesting that the claims about Putyatin's politics are true. But as you say, even if they were, the idea that Lukashenko forced down an airliner because of his deeply felt anti-fascism—right? It's like
2: can I we know. can we focus? Can we just focus on what's happening here?
1: Yeah, but I think Navalny is an interesting an interesting case as well because it's another example of one of these figures who from. In his case, a short and temporary exile, were still able to influence politics in their own countries. Navalny famously published his video about Putin's alleged opulent palace on the Black Sea while he was away in Germany recovering from his poisoning. And I think it's an interesting thread that runs through all of these cases, which which is that, and this is is the point I make in the magazine, that. Previously when you went in when you were sent into exile or forced into exile, there wasn't much you could do to play a role in the politics back in your home country. But but in the last ten or twenty years that's transformed through Twitter, Telegram, WhatsApp and so forth. You you're just then seeing autocrats be even more brazen in their in their moves to um Take down these extraterritorial dissidents from afar in defiance of international rules and norms. Anyway, um, yeah, in an interesting case, and that's certainly a story that's not over. So we'll continue to follow it, and we might even do an episode, I think, on it sometime soon because it's, it's an important one. But with that, we have a very important issue to tackle for this week's episode. The G7 is looming down on us. It's going to take place from the 11th to the 13th of June in Cornwall. So it's being hosted this year by the British government. And it comes at a time when there's been a lot of discussion about Britain's place in the world. Naturally, with Brexit now formalized, the big question is, where does Britain go outside of the European Union? What does it? What sort of role does it play? And contributing to that was the publication in March of the British government's new integrated review on foreign and security policy, which to some extent pointed the, the way that the government wants the country to go. And as part of our coverage of that, we had a very excellent essay out in April by our special correspondent, Harry Lambert, who writes about a range of topics um, about the, the UK, but also other, other topics, and is with us this week to discuss his essay and to preview the G7. So Harry, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you very much for having me. Good to be
1: so I wanted to start off with a very broad question, drawing on your essay, Harry, in which you quote a former British ambassador to Washington, um, himself quoting Anthony Crossland, who talked about Britain being pulled between, on the one hand, its blue water identity, or its global identity, and its European identity. And I suppose the big question now is, has leaving the European Union helped to resolve that tension in how Britain sees its place in the world, do you think?
3: Well, I don't think it's resolved the tension, but I just think it's changed the dynamic, you know, the relative weight of the equation, if you like. The ambassador in question, Christopher Mayer, says that, you know, after we joined the EEC in 1973, the pendulum swung towards the continent, having long been much more uh, you know, Britain's role, of course, under the empire, and then the Commonwealth w- w- was more outward f- facing apart from when we were dragged into the continent's affairs by periodic wars, we would often look to the to the seas. And So obviously, that changed over the last 50 years. And, you know, Mayor's point is that's now just swinging back. The big thing that I discovered doing this piece in, in April now, um, but I've been looking at it since the start of the year. Is you know you think of Brexit as this great rupture, this great change in, in the social dynamic of the of the UK, and it is in many ways. But at the same time, the more I spoke to people inside Number Ten and across um, the, the sort of foreign policy establishment, if you like, the more I kind of started to think that the degree of movement here is not actually that great, and that Global Britain is you know as so often in politics just a, a new brand name for a plan that is you know not all that different from the plan we had. Over the last forty years, now there will be some like a Jonathan Powell, who's who's mentioned in the piece, and um, was chief of staff for Tony Blair in Number Ten uh, for ten years. People like Powell will say to you, "Well, that that's just wrong. That the Global Britain strategy, such as it, such as it is, has a great big hole." Uh, he said to me, "Where Europe should be, and we've never had a coherent foreign policy without a Europe policy." So. That's the great question. Has British foreign policy taken a taken a big hit? Is there now a great big hole? Or or in fact, is this quite similar to, to where we were ten years ago? That's the big question, I think.
2: It kind of sounds like you think that it's that it's not a great big hole, that this is yeah. different, but in a way a continuation of the of of the same. So I guess what do you say to those like Powell who say there's a gaping hole?
3: Well, look, um, Jonathan Powell knows more about global affairs than I do. And and if he thinks so, then, you know, I'm willing to reserve judgment. At the same time, I think it partly comes down to my view of Brexit, which is, I think Brexit is something which will be watered down over time. I think you know, a number 10 source said to me that uh, our, long ra- our, our long run standing in Europe has been sort of deliberately left ajar, they said, by the strategy. And it, it's quite possible that Britain's role with Europe could become closer over time and and they think the strategy provides for that. So I guess, you know, another response to Powell is less that you, whether or not he's wrong, but just for how long is it the case that Britain remains in this sort of slightly fractious dynamic with Europe? Or is it the case that over the next decade and, and certainly into the 2030s, especially on foreign policy matters, we just come closer and closer and closer? I don't know what you, what would you two say?
1: Just just on on this, I mean, I, I haven't been following this as closely as you have, but on when the, the Integrated Review was published, I did a, a short column uh, in which. I talked about the fact, as 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 you've observed yourself, that um, that Europe was this sort of was this missing piece in the integrated review. For example, you know, the, the government doesn't really want to seem to engage with the question of where Europe fits into its foreign policy vision, presumably because it's a difficult one, and, and the Conservative Party is divided on it, and it involves some difficult trade-offs. But the, the the point I made was certainly actually looking at the UK from the outside, from from, from Germany, you know, looking at where transatlantic relations are, looking at. Um, the kind of wider geopolitical picture. It would it would seem to me that actually the an area where a a where Britain actually, irrespective of Brexit, can most um, influence its own interests and influence the things that, that 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 should matter to it would actually be in Europe's own neighbourhood. You know, you look. I mean, even from the, in the last few weeks, at the uncertainty in the Baltic around Belarus, but also bear in mind that you know n- nearby in Estonia, Britain's leading NATO's enhanced forward presence as a defense against um, particularly Russian military aggression. You look at the um, instability in Ukraine and the recent buildup of Russian troops on its eastern border. You look at the tensions between Greece and Turkey, where Britain does actually have, have quite an important role, particularly through its, its relationship with Cyprus. You look at instability in the Middle East, Israel-Palestine most recently. You um, you look at north africa uh, and the way that the way in which europe including the uk's security seems increasingly to be bound up with events on the other side of the Sahara. You look at this 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 is great crescent around the UK and it seems to me that that's where, in many ways, the most important changes are taking place that affect British security and in many ways British prosperity. And then on top of that, I'd add, and perhaps here, Emily, you could you could come in on the American perspective, but it seems to me that you know, Britain wants to be a relevant partner to the US. It wants to maintain this special relationship. It wants to probably um, intensify it after Brexit. It, it seems clear that Biden does not want to get caught up in conflicts or crises in this part of the world, by which I mean, uh, with regards to Russia, maybe, but certainly in the Middle East, I mean, he was very clear that he didn't want to get sucked into a new Israel-Palestine conflict. And actually, you know, for, for a US that wants to pivot to the, the, the contest with China into the Pacific, as Biden clearly wants to do, you know, one would think that while it's tempting and probably quite glamorous to say we'll pivot to the Indo-Pacific, which is obviously a big part of this global Britain strategy, and perhaps, Harry, you could talk a bit more about this Indo-Pacific pivot and what they mean by that. It's obviously a sort of tempting idea, but one wonders if if the UK couldn't actually be more valuable to Biden and, and, and his administration by standing up for security and stability in this European neighbourhood where the US actually doesn't want to be so focused at the moment. So anyway, that's a a sort of long way of saying my instinct from the outside is that actually Britain should and could still be thinking, even after Brexit, about having more, not less of a role in security terms and in foreign policy terms in its own and indeed Europe's sort of shared neighborhood. Anyway, Emily, first of all, could we hear from you on this? What's your perspective about what the US needs and wants from Britain?
2: I guess I would say two things. The first is that it's it's very important to the United States that the UK and the EU continue to have good working relations, right? I think it's sort of, it's the kind of thing where we're not going to get involved, uh, we being, you know, the american government the american government's not going to necessarily get involved and be like now you two cooperate but this shouldn't be a headache for the u.s i think the u.s perspective is we have enough headaches we don't need our two our two pals uh not getting along and making life more difficult for us particularly given particularly on matters of security and defense the other thing i would say and i have a piece coming out on this this next month uh, so i don't want to give away too no i'm just kidding I'll, I'll give it all away um for you the new statesman world review listeners <laughs> I
3: mean, um, what's the point of being a podcast listener is not to get yeah Yeah,
2: exactly exactly
3: our listeners get
1: some get some
2: uh, (laughs) but but, you know and basically the question is the question is does the united states need a global britain and look i think if but by which by which i mean does the united does the united states need a britain that has a foreign policy that is confident that is ambitious that is coherent if britain can't do that are we going to sink into the sea no but it will be much worse for the united states on both the the British near abroad and the farther abroad, right? As Jeremy said, I think there is a portfolio that the United States would be happy to have Britain on, on, on which Biden would, ha- or most American presidents for that matter, would be happy to have Britain and the EU do more. Um, and Britain is, you know, just spends much more on defense than the EU, the various European countries do is in five eyes, the intelligence sharing group, which these European countries are not. And also, you know, I think there was this, and I've complained about this on this podcast before, but there's this line among some that, oh, Britain's out of the EU, and so it lost its role as the go-between between the U.S. and Europe. And it's just like that has not been America's relationship to either of these entities in so long. All these presidents have their own relationships with Germany, with France, with the EU is an institution and will continue to have that. And none of those countries, when the US calls, are listening as intently to what the US suggests it do as Britain is. Um, I've had I've had this discussion with some, you know, British foreign policy types who basically say, Yeah, but we can't just have, you know, on on China on the Indo-Pacific, what good are we if we can't bring others along? And it's like, I don't know if you've met the United States. But we love people who just listen to us, right? Like there aren't that many allies and partners of the United States who are willing to spend a lot of money, invest a lot of time, have this ambitious, far-reaching foreign policy and work closely with the United States and try to set a a model for others, which I think Britain could do on, for example, this plan to have a a common global tax rate. So basically, that's my long-winded answer of saying that, that both are really important. It's important to the United States that Britain and the EU get along. And it's important to the United States that Britain continues to look both at its, its close borders and farther away.
3: You know, first of all, on that idea of us as the great negotiator between Europe and America, that is the kind of Jonathan Powell view. And I think, you know, Christopher Mayer is one of the many people who push back against that and say that we've just never had that role, as, as you yourself are saying. And more to the point, it, you know, Mayer's point and the point of others is we don't need to have that role. Like, that's not why we are close allies with America, ultimately, as you're saying. And and, and as number 10 kind of concede, you know, their view is, if you're the United States, what do you want out of an ally? You want someone that pretty much is just like Britain, you know, their their view is the Amer- America wants allies who share its values, who focus on human rights, who care about democracy and climate change, who spend over 2% of their GDP on defense, you know, committing to the language of, of, of burden sharing, as they like to put it. And, you know, allies who can also help diplomatically uh, as we can with our seat on the u n Security Council, a number ten advisor said to me if i 'm the Americans, I therefore look to the Brits above anyone else and so it 's not about us having a special relationship with them. you know Christopher Mayer says the only countries in the world that have a special relationship with America are Ireland and Israel, because only those two countries can actually affect domestic American politics, which I thought was a really interesting point i hadn't thought about that that, that, that way before um, and, and just finally, jeremy, on, on your point, you know this idea of us kind of dealing with our our nearby crescent. I think the the reason why number ten justify the tilt to the Indo Pacific rather than doing that is because that would be sort of second division football. You know, it's all very well saying we can take care of this area of the world that you're not that interested in, but number ten feel like all their analysis pointed to the Indo Pacific as the place where the, the key powers were going to be um, negotiating the twenty first century, and they wanted to be on the playing field now. You can argue whether that's uh, a foolish aim, but uh, I think that would be their their response to why you don't focus on just your you know your sort of own internal affairs. You, you don't want to be playing in the G League when America is in the NBA.
1: <laughs> so uh, I think an important question, follow up question, on which I'd be very interested to hear what you discovered is: what do they think Britain can bring to the Indo Pacific at at the at
3: America's side? <laughs> well, I think this is the great question, and, and this is a question I've tried to ask, and, and sometimes. Felt uh, at a loss because you know we we obviously have two aircraft carriers and we're famously sending one of them as as part of the, the strike force that's doing a sort of patrol around the South China Sea. In moment. fact,
1: actually, that's that's leaving any day now, isn't it? I know I'm, Johnson I'm, Johnson did a visit yeah. to Portsmouth about a right. week or so ago to sort of to sort of see it off. Anyway, yes, yeah, um, exactly. so, a, a so, we're sending,
3: so we're sending a boat, uh um, and we're going to join you know things like ASEAN as as a as a. As a, as I believe, a, a sort of diplomatic partner, um, you know, a local Asian power body. But the reality is, and I, I think I put this to number ten. You know, what, how can we really be involved over there? And I don't, I, I wouldn't say they gave me a strong answer as to how, exactly we can be involved over there. So I'm not going to suggest one now. But you know, they believe that you just have to kind of make noises in the right direction. Events will pop up in the area, and it's key to sort of have a military presence, have a diplomatic presence, uh, stay involved economically. You know, one of the frustrations with, with with researching a subject like foreign policy is you talk to former ambassadors to Japan or, or what have you in the region, and you kind of get them to nail down what the job is of foreign policy. And you do end up hearing these words like economically, militarily, diplomatically, and you think, what are they all like exactly add up to? And, and, and what do you mean by that? And, and it takes a while to kind of get beyond the, the broad terms.
1: I mean Emily can I ask you a slightly more specific version of the question I asked you before what what does the US want from the from the UK in the Indo-Pacific I mean, what what do we know about the Biden approach to the competition with China to its attempt to forge closer relationship with the likes of Japan and Australia and India and so forth
2: yeah that well, we could
1: bring to this this reflection on the UK
2: I actually think that more than any anything that they're physically doing in the Indo-Pacific the more useful thing the more relevant thing to the United States and I'm sure US defense types would disagree with me on this but is what's done in the UK with respect to China, right? So on, I don't know, on Hong Kong or on um, speaking out against what's happening to the Uyghurs or on working with the United States on sanctions if it comes to that, on which the UK now has more flexibility because it's not in the EU, right? Or on, I don't know, uh, approaching uh, trade more similarly than the US does with respect to China than does Germany, for example. Harry, what do you think? If the UK is going to be useful on the Indo-Pacific, do you think that it's going to be useful in London or or abroad? Or both or neither? Uh,
3: I think we should move away a little bit from from thinking in terms of the Indo-Pacific, because I think the reality is the Indo-Pacific is just sort of the surface layer analysis of what's just happened with global Britain and the integrated review. You know, no doubt we can be helpful through the UN as number 10.2 on, on stuff like the Uyghurs. And, you, you know, we can play a role there, though it will be minor. That's inevitable. But, and just more ask, you know, what is the point of British foreign policy? How much has it changed? And and when has it been successful? I think the number 10 view is that there's this sort of hegemony of thought that the last 20 years of British foreign policy before Brexit were a success. And they push back and they say, well, what were the great successes of British foreign policy over the last 20 years? There haven't been any. So I think their their main view is, is rather than be so critical of the Indo-Pacific tilt, is just to say... It's not like we have had a particularly successful 15, 20 years. Libya wasn't a success. Iraq wasn't a success. And so the idea of just trying to involve ourselves more in an area should be should be met with less um, uh, indignation and, and condescension. Um, you know th- They hate the idea that we should sort of humbly submit to our geography. And they say the French and the Germans have long detailed what their, their plans are in the Indo-Pacific. And when they do so, they don't get criticised with quite the same sort of delusions of grandeur that our press uh, like to level at them.
2: And and I also think that from the US perspective, look, it would be pretty easy for Britain to say, actually, we don't need this. Like, We don't need to be doing this. We don't need to be spending all of this money on intelligence, on defense, on foreign policy. We're going to, you know, we're we're going to take care or tend to our own garden and, and enjoy America, your, you know, your foreign policy misadventures. And that would be really bad for the United States, right? To have a more inward, to have an inward facing Britain that's not interested. I mean, forget the Indo-Pacific, but that's just not interested in foreign policy engagement in the same way that that they are now. Uh, You know, do I think that the UK is going to come back and like... (laughs) <laughs> rule the Indo-Pacific? Uh, no, of course not. But do I think that the United States should be encouraging them to be p- playing a thoughtfully active, non-imperialistic role in the Indo-Pacific? Sure.
3: Yeah, I think just on that, um, you know, Tom Tugendhat, uh, the Conservative Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee in, in the UK said to me, you he know, quipped, we could just fall back and guard Dover you know there is that that strand of thinking like why are we still trying to involve ourselves in f- foreign conflicts? Uh, why don't we just sort of take the turn that Denmark took at the turn of the last century and you know retreat from empire and re- re- retreat from ambitions to 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 involve ourselves far afield? And that's a question I th- still think is interesting to ask and 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 it's really hard to ask people in the foreign policy establishment that question because it's just so axiomatic that to be a powerful nation, you exercise power, as as Tom Fletcher um, said to me, who who was a foreign affairs advisor in Downing Street for Gordon Brown and and others. So, uh, you know, it's just very hard to get people who are actually involved in the decision making to think about whether we should retreat because that's seen as defeat.
1: One of the things that seems to me surprisingly um, sort of secondary in a lot of this, certainly in terms of the thinking coming out of the current government, and maybe I've just misunderstood it, but it's the impression I get, is that there isn't yet and maybe it's a work in progress a clear vision of, of of what britain's interests are like we have the we have these theories about how the world's changing we have these theories about the arenas that are going to matter mm-hmm. but you know there's that old phrase i think it's this is attributed to palmerston there's there are no permanent allies no permanent enemies just permanent interests mm-hmm. and it's true that that there there is clearly a case for European countries to get involved in the Indo Pacific, and you're right that the fact that the that France and Germany had their own Indo Pacific strategies suggests that this isn't just an act of post imperial nostalgia on the part of the kind of the Brexit government mm-hmm. in London. But what what I miss, particularly from the way that Europe is this sort of vacuum in in the foreign policy thinking, or certainly in the in the integrated review, insofar as that's a, mm-hmm. a representative vision of of how Downing Street see these things. And you know, it seems to me that if you don't have a clear argument about what Britain needs from its security and foreign policy relationship with the continent of which it is geographically part. And the continent whose security threats, whose economic stability or instability, whose political situation you are very exposed to um, through movements of people or goods, or the fact that it's still by far your largest trading trading partner. The fact that that, that isn't there doesn't, I have to say, give me confidence that that that, that big conversation about exactly where Britain's interests lie. Has been taking place. Perhaps it's happening, and perhaps it's, I'm, I'm just not seeing so much of it. And I'm, I'm, as I say, I'm watching this from afar, from Berlin. But I guess that's that's something that concerns me.
3: Well, I think it's really hard to get the British government to say what its interests are. I, I kept wanting in my research to sort of come across a big book that detailed all our plans for every country and what we you know, what we wanted to do. But it's well, maybe that document exists inside the Foreign Office, but I haven't seen it. And so you're left with with very broad statements. You know, I get told that. The UK has made a punt on openness, um, barriers to trade being reduced is the great opportunity for Britain. And you know, people say, well, hang on, what about Brexit? And the way number 10 see it, and maybe they're wrong, is that the EU is fundamentally quite a large regulatory and protectionist block. And it's much better to be outside a block like that over time because they think the world is going to open up. They think those sort of blocks are going to be less relevant um, to, the, to the trading order of the future which is a whole big question in itself. But, you know, in answer more specifically to sort of what are our core five interests, you know, one of the frustrating things is the length of the uh, integrated review and the variety of interests and aims that it identifies. And that's in real contrast to the beauty of Fili- uh, British foreign policy after the war, when Attlee and the Labour government reduced our aims to three pillars, the famous three pillar strategy.
1: Wherever you are in the world,
2: if you're interested in global affairs,
1: you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe.
2: That's just $2 a week in America.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
1: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: That, I think, is a good moment to come onto a section that we like to call...
2: You Ask Us.
1: Our question this week, and Harry... I will invite you to take the first go at it is how much is at stake for the British government at the G7 summit? So, as I said, as I said earlier on, um, this is starting in two weeks time as this podcast goes out, it's going to be in Cornwall in the Southwest of England. There's clearly a sense that the British government will be on show and put to the test, but what, how important do you think it is, Harry? And what, and what should we expect from it? What, what, what's, what's the Johnson
3: government's game plan? Yeah. So I think it's interesting. Um, when you ask number 10 this question they say the main aim is just to get it working again after trump because it was such an inglorious period for the g7 and you know since i spoke to to those inside number 10 you've obviously seen a lot of action on things like a global minimum tax for corporations and that would be a big win i think a bigger win than they were expecting frankly um uh, when, when i was researching the piece there's loads on the agenda uh, they want to, you know, they're, they're bringing in India, South Korea, Australia and South Africa to form a sort of D, D11 of global democracies. And, you know, they want to build on that just to undermine that slightly. You know, people like Jonathan Powell say uh, previous G7s, they've invited countries in, and those groupings so often exist for a, a month and then they're, they're gone the next month. So we'll see if if, if ideas like the D, D11 D have any legs.
1: Yeah. And of course, it's going to be a significant moment because it will be Joe Biden's first trip Abroad since becoming president, Um, Emily, how's how's it seen from Washington? What's what will people be watching?
2: Well, two things. Uh, I've been asked by some, you know, what does it mean that this is his first foreign trip? First of all, it means that there was a pandemic. But secondly, I think even if there even if there had not been a pandemic, his first or an early trip would have been to to Britain, to the EU, because it's it's part of this Biden's promise that America is back, that America is is reasserting itself on the on the international stage. I guess the domestic version of this is that we've already had the Japanese prime minister and South Korean president visit visit the White House, right, to kind of reestablish the importance of those alliances too after Trump. I would say two other things. The first is that I've been a little surprised at how negative some in conservative circles in British media were toward, toward Biden. And my point, which I think I made on this podcast, was kind of like, If you give, if you, if you set aside that most Democrats back in 2016 were opposed to Brexit, this will actually, a Biden presidency will be better for you guys than a Trump presidency, right? He's going to be more interested in multilateralism. He's going to be more interested in working together. He's going to be more predictable in what he does. And I think that we'll see that at the G7, right? I do not think that we will see a repeat of, like, I, I, if Biden were to throw candy at Merkel as Trump reportedly did, I would fall out of my chair, right? That I, I just don't think that that's going to happen. Whether the G7 does anything more than show that that these institutions are back, right, that we can have world leaders together and it won't be a complete circus. Like, yes, it will do that. Can it do more than that, right? Can we actually use these? What What is the point of these multilateral gatherings? What can they put forth? What can they achieve? That, I think, is what people in Washington will be, at least skeptics of Biden's foreign policy in Washington, will be looking at.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, you know, the the G seven itself being on under scrutiny, as people ask, is this the right way to do international leadership and, and governance? And I think for the UK government, as you say, Harry, th- this is a great opportunity to to host the G seven summit at which people will, if it goes well, say the West is back. Uh, the transatlantic relationship is back. Multilateralism is back. The Trump years are over. This is, this is grown up, responsible democratic governments working together like they should have been doing for the last four years, but, but what but were obstructed from doing by the then American president. However, I think the flip side of that is that there are probably quite high expectations. You know, Biden comes into this very willing to make ambitious agreements on things like the climate and also things like this um common global tax framework but i suppose if if it is perceived as being a bit of a damp squib and by the way as i understand it the uk government's currently the one most um standing in the way of this, this agreement on on tax um, partly because it has unusually low corporate tax rates for a large Western economy, that if it is seen as a damp squib, then one wonders, I, I, it feels just looking at international debates like an open question as to which, what sort of format global governments decide is the right level at which to to do this sort of symmetry. You know, there've been talk of, do do you maybe start reviving the G20, which has sort of been a bit, on the back foot in the last years, it obviously came together during the financial crisis as as as, as a forum to deal with global economic inst- instability. But I suppose the question is now, particularly now that the G seven itself represents an ever smaller share of the global economy, although as as you say, Harry, they are adding in other countries like India as, as supplementary participants. Mm-hmm. You know, another idea that's in the ether, which I, I don't know that it's that realistic, but I think is an interesting idea of where some of the discussions are going, and I wrote about this recently, is this idea of a new global concert of powers, where you have six major powers of various different political complexions sit together and make the big decisions in a kind of non-ideological way. And that, that would, I think, be... This This was put forward by Richard Haas of the Council for Foreign Relations and um, it would, I think, be sort of India, China, the US, Japan, the EU and Russia. And um, it was it was noted, because and this brings us back to our, our main topic in this conversation, that Britain was not included in that by by Haas and and his co-writer. And they actually said that, yes, we're not including the UK in this, but we think that this will help the UK to push the UK and the EU together. Now, as I said, I don't know how realistic this idea is, but I think it goes to show that people are having, you know, there are discussions going on about, is the G7 the right forum is the G20? Do you need to create something else? What role does the UN have?
2: I agree that there probably should be some new combination of countries. But I I also think that we risk privileging form over substance in some of these conversations, right? Like, is the problem with the G7 that it's these seven countries and they meet in this way or at this time? Or is the problem that they are not clear on what it is that they're trying to achieve? Like, what is the point of these multilateral gatherings, right? And I say this as as a I think if you listen to this podcast, you know that I'm not a uh, uh, an America first type, not to give too much away. But uh, you know, as a believer in multilateralism and as a believer in internationalism and and the reality of globalization, like we clearly need some kind of convenings. But what? But is, is that the only reason we're convening? Like, what are what are we trying to do here? And I think that while yes, it's fair and right and good to ask the question of what is the best combination, how should they meet, etc. That is not a substitute for for what they're doing.
3: That is really the key point. You know. What what are they trying to do here? What is the UK trying to do here? And it may be worth to just spell out what that three pillars strategy I mentioned earlier was in 1948. And just listen to the simplicity of this. They said, the security of the British Commonwealth dep- depended on A, the defence of the UK, B, maintaining vital sea communications, and C, securing the Middle East as a defensive and striking base against the Soviet Union. Now, of course, they had other aims, that was secondary. But it's, it's just an era that was completely different to the era we now live in when a government would openly state with, with great simplicity, what they were trying to do. And, you know, we have these conversations about the G7 and what it can achieve, because it's now so much less clear what governments want to do, right? They, they have so many different aims. And, and we don't, we, we can't just imagine them sitting down and saying, well, look, these are my three big focuses. How can we work together on that? it's also it's also the reality which i suppose gets to this
1: larger question uh, that it, we're in a, a multipolar world, and it's not simply a case of picking a side. Even even on China, I mean, as much as people make the comparisons with the Cold War, I don't think that's a relevant or useful h- historical comparison. There is a, a competition between China and the West, but actually, uh, you know, the UK I think sums this up. You know, even even the UK, which is trying to align itself very closely with the US in this, m- more so certainly than continental Europe and most of the EU is these days, it's it's still going to face complicated trade-offs that I think that I think are more complicated than those faced. Certainly, on the fundamental choices by the post-war UK, by Atlee's UK, you know, you say Harry that there's this view in Number Ten that Britain needs to be a force for openness, and it will be that will be its calling card in the world, and that's and that's a kind of that's a fairly clear and I I can kind of understand what they're getting with that. With that, you can you can dispute whether or not it's true that the EU is such a protectionist force, but 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 just you can you can see where they're coming from, and then. You know, the question becomes: Well, if you're a force for openness, and you also want to be America's one of America's closest allies with regards to the competition with China, where does that leave your trade policy with China? Are you rushing in to try and do trade deals? Are you are you preferencing uh, open and extensive trade with China over other geopolitical concerns? concerns? Where do you stand on those trade offs? And I just think in that sort of world, it is nothing, things aren't are not that simple. Yeah, maybe we have to get used to the idea that government foreign policy strategies need to be hundreds of pages long rather than three, three, three short, simple pr- statements of
3: principle. I, I don't know. I, I, you might be absolutely right about that. And I think the trade-off you described there is the one that obviously lots of um, powers and countries in, in, in all, all over the East uh, are having to make all the time. Um, an ambassador in the region saying, you know, so many of the countries there, they, they look economically to China and militarily to the US. And that, that's the great tension we're going to see play out over the next couple of decades, isn't it?
2: You know, there was this idea that I think has kind of been abandoned, but we'll see. On that, Biden floated of convening democracies. Basically, Harry. Between that and you know, there was uh, this great brouhaha this week over Orbán coming to London, meeting Johnson, and how how could you know he meet the Hungarian prime minister? Which, first of all, neither the U.S. nor the U.K. is the primary "quote unquote" Western power that is emboldened Orbán's Hungary. But leaving that to the side, I guess my this is a long way of asking: like, what role do you think? Our stated values, at least, should have in dictating these these convenings. Like, is that what matters, or is it your economic level, your national security posture? What 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 do you think for the UK, at least? Um, let's say, what do you think should be the deciding? If you if you Harry were put in charge of putting these convenings together, would values be a like a metric?
3: I'm less interested by my changeable view, which is, may change from nine a.m. to three p.m. Uh, than in, then in the British government's attempt to sort of solve these questions. And and uh, I mean, that's uh, meant there's no slight on the question, but just to, just, just to say that. No,
2: no, that's fine. You can shade my question. Know. It's all right. I won't take it personally. <laughs> we'll remember it. We're not colleagues. No, yeah. we are. And I will remember
3: it. No, sorry, go on. You know, the, 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 the way the government see it, and the way they've tried to adjudicate it is they say, look, we meet people all the time that we don't agree with. They met with Ali Bongo, the uh, Gabonese, um, Gabonese rather uh, president just the other week. And, and they no more agree with his ideas than they do with, with Victor Orbán's, But it always pays to talk to, to global leaders. They say, you know, effective work needs to be done on organized crime and serious crime that the Hungarian government can help the British government with. They also, of course, have interests in Europe that it can pay to talk to Orbán with. Look, uh, I would love to be able to solve the great dilemma between, you know, values and political reality, but I'm not sure I can.
2: Well, Harry has rejected my question. If you would like to send our next guest more questions, um, please keep them coming into You Ask Us at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk.
1: So that brings us to our look ahead to the next week in world affairs, or, or indeed in domestic politics. Harry, what will you be looking ahead to in the next seven days?
3: Well, I think the fallout over here from the Dominic Cummings trial, while, they, while that might, might seem insular, uh, it, it is remarkable. It, it It's like bannon you know and trump for, for someone who's who has not had the, I, the yes i'm so of excited
1: of encountering the personality of dominic cummings can you just give us a quick
3: overview of who he is and why he matters yeah. so far, so think about it this way five years ago this month boris johnson and dominic cummings uh, were both fighting to take britain out of the eu dominic cummings was the key strategist behind that campaign boris johnson was the, the key front man they were working together Cummings famously had Johnson stand in front of a big bus pledging money to the NHS if the British would only leave the EU. They won that referendum. After much delay, three years later, they got into government because the Tory party faced an extinction-level event over Brexit and they returned to Boris Johnson to solve that problem and he returned to to Dominic Cummings and said, come and help me fix this problem that we started in 2016. They they worked together to win an election in 2019 very successfully and in the years since... They have spectacularly fallen out yesterday, uh, or rather, was it on Wednesday? The former chief aide to to, to Johnson Cummings was was in front of Parliament's two select committees on health and science and answered questions for seven hours with no restraint um, and with complete condemnation of of Boris Johnson and some of the key figures in his government. And the ramifications of that will uh, reverberate through Westminster all through the next week.
1: So one one worth watching. Emily, how about you?
2: I'm delighted that we finally got to talk about Dominic Cummings on the World Review podcast. Um, I will not be watching Dominic Cummings, though. I will be watching, you know, I I think it was pretty clear coming into this administration that Biden did not want to get bogged down in the Middle East, specifically in Israel-Palestine and events have forced his hand, right? So uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken went to the region to meet with Netanyahu and Egyptian President Sisi and um, with Palestinians there's going to be continued pressure in Washington from Biden's left flank um, to change U.S. policy toward Israel-Palestine. How the U.S. engages, the extent to which it continues to engages, whether or not it changes. Uh, I mean, I, I think the, the reality is that if the U.S. just keeps the status quo, that's not not being involved, right? We just provide so much, not just military aid, but diplomatic support to Israel. And so... I will be watching although there was a ceasefire fortunately uh over over Gaza obviously the the conflict itself continues and I will be watching both that and the US posture specifically the Biden administration's posture toward it and I should also say that the background or not the background but along with all of this they're trying to restart they're they're trying they're continuing Iran talks right on the nuclear deal so which is obviously a contentious issue with respect to Israel which was staunchly opposed to the Iran nuclear deal so it's not just this one issue although that issue it, like, even if it were that one issue, that would be significant and difficult, both obviously for the people there, but also for the Biden administration. Um, but there's this whole other extremely complicated negotiation going on that further complicates matters. I will be
1: looking ahead to the growing chorus of calls for the Olympics uh, in Tokyo to be cancelled or, or, or heavily rained back. They're due to start now in under two months on the 23rd of July. And the numbers of people, of authorities or experts saying that they think they should not go ahead is now rising Um, yesterday as this podcast goes out. A Japanese doctor's union said that the games going ahead could um, mean that you might even end up with a new strain of the virus because the risk is that you'd have people arriving from all different parts of the world with other strains and that those would sort of mix and mutate and that you could even end up with, a, a as they put it, an Olympic strain of the coronavirus, which is a, a rather horrifying thought. You know, There's growing evidence that the Japanese public is, is against it. The country's second biggest newspaper yesterday came out as well against it. Um, an American medical body has come out and said its a bad idea and it's it's obviously very difficult because the Olympics were already postponed one time since last year. The IOC has said that it, that they won't let it be postponed again because we've already got the Winter Olympics coming up next spring. Um, so it's either a case of canceling it or going ahead with it. For the Japanese government, obviously there's a huge amount of sunk investment and um, national pride. Um, involved. And so it's a really, really difficult one. But the government in Tokyo is due to say in the next few weeks, they said they would announce in June at some point, what their policy would be for letting Domestic spectators attend events. They've already said that people won't be allowed to enter the country to spectate, but they said Japanese residents will be able to, and even that's now looking questionable. You know how many how many people can you put in a stadium safely at the moment? So it's it's a it's a very sad story because it would have been a, a great moment of renewal and healing for the world to have these games go ahead particularly as originally envisioned, but it's looking like that's going to be more and more difficult. And I'm just, I'll be watching to see how that story develops, because it doesn't seem like there are any great options on the table. So that's what I'll be watching. All of which brings us to the point where we say a big thank you to Harry Lambert, special correspondent at the New Statesman for joining us for this really interesting conversation. Thank you, Harry.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
1: And listeners, as usual, we will be putting the pieces discussed in this episode on the episode page for the podcast, including Harry's great essay on the debates about Britain's future foreign policy. Um, so that's all, as usual, going to be on com slash world-review-podcast. hyphen hyphen
2: If you have enjoyed this episode of The World Review, please like, subscribe, spread the word, leave a review, call your cousins, tell them about it, and... As a reminder, we have a free newsletter component of the World Review, to which you can subscribe at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review.
1: Our producer has been Chris Stone. Thank you for listening and until next week. Normally, being a little
0: extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Trust in politics is
3: broken. So, can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral
0: dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.